Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Those were the sounds of protests from Hong Kong in 2019. In 2019 and 2020, millions took to the streets, sparked at first by opposition to a bill that allowed extraditions to mainland China. The protests, which ultimately took on a range of pro-democracy demands, were met with violent police resistance, and many activists were jailed. Protesters sought to defend civil liberties that Beijing pledged to uphold in the former British colony following its reversion to Chinese sovereignty in 1997. But the 2020 implementation of the national security law amounted to what the pro-democracy think tank Freedom House called a multi-front attack on the one country, two systems framework. Since then, the crackdown on activism and the erosion of rights has continued. This week, a public consultation period ended for a new Hong Kong national security law known as Article 23. Article 23 targets a wide array of crimes, including treason, theft of state secrets, espionage, sabotage, and sedition, and the Hong Kong legislature, dominated by pro-Beijing lawmakers, is expected to approve it, even as critics argue that it criminalizes basic human rights, such as the freedom of expression, signaling the further erosion of the liberties once enjoyed by residents of Hong Kong. But even as freedoms there are curtailed, Hong Kong still permits U.S. social media and technology platforms to operate. These tech firms have yet to openly challenge policies that threaten the free flow of information in Hong Kong, raising questions about corporate responsibility and the ethical considerations of purportedly pro-democracy firms doing business in regions where freedoms are under threat. To learn more about what is happening in Hong Kong and what role tech firms and other outside voices could be doing to preserve the freedoms of the people there, I spoke to three experts who are following developments closely. I'm Cheng Chengkuang. I'm the Senior Analyst at the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. I'm Lokman Choi. I'm a fellow at the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto. Michael Castor, the Asia Digital Program Manager with Article 19. Thank you all for joining me today. We're going to talk a little bit about internet intermediaries, censorship, protest, and Hong Kong. But first, I think for Tech Policy Press listeners, it'd be a useful thing to do to just spend a moment on the political context in Hong Kong at the moment. Let me take a stab at that. Hong Kong was uh, massively in the news in 2019 when the protests were going on. You might be wondering what happened to the protests. Hong Kong is no longer in the news. But the reality is that the protests died down because of COVID. You might remember that little epidemic uh, that we had for a couple of years. And then quickly in 2020, COVID happened, but also the national security law happened in Hong Kong. Beijing dropped that law overnight in Hong Kong without any kind of consultation or even the local government having seen it. And it quickly changed the complete, completely changed the landscape, the political landscape in Hong Kong. It became a lot easier than to arrest people for simply protesting, for simply being critical of the government. It's very hard to sum up what happened in the last couple of years, but very briefly, I don't think I'm exaggerating when complete social, political, economic fabric of Hong Kong has changed in the last couple of years. Civil society got gutted. 
press freedom is uh, constantly under attack, and journalists, critical independent journalists, are an extinct or an endangered species at this point. Uh, universities have changed massively. The courts have changed massively. I think the one line sum up is Hong Kong had made a massive turn towards authoritarianism. Uh, it was once a free city, maybe not democratic in that strict sense of the word, but with rule of law, with freedom, not perfect, but in the last couple of years, it has made a decisive shift toward the authoritarianism that Beijing wants the city to be under. When I was living in Beijing 14, 15 years ago, the internet restrictions were already in place. In China, all of the you know mainstream social media platforms were blocked, all of that. And, and I remember visiting Hong Kong on visa runs or for meetings and things like that, traveling from Beijing to Hong Kong. And the stark difference that you would see, you know, everything that was inaccessible in China was accessible in Hong Kong. And over the, the years, especially since the national security law has been imposed by Beijing, as, as Wolfman said, all of that uh, freedom, the, you know, the internet freedom that existed in, in Hong Kong has been chipped away at. And slowly but surely through a forced censorship or self-censorship from the fear of arbitrary imprisonment, the digital space has increasingly taken on a sense, a feeling uh, similar to, again, that sort of authoritarian model of, of internet governance that Beijing is so known for. There seems to be a facade of things going normal or back to normal right now in the pro-Beijing or Hong Kong government narrative. That is, there's still the facade of internet freedom. That's people still have access to social media, things that aren't accessible uh, back in mainland China. And they're still trying to justify that, oh, look, Hong Kong is still under one country into a system. We're still quite different from mainland China. But in essence, through the implications of the national security law or the uh, proposed Article 23 is just not going to be the same because there's going to be, as Michael said, forced censorship and self-censorship. But they're still trying very hard to maintain the facade that there is no great firewall in Hong Kong. So let's talk about these legal changes uh, that are happening. And you mentioned Article 23 of the basic law. And there are, of course, other changes that are presently out for public consultation. The Article 23, uh, as you said, is an article inside the basic law, which is like the mini constitution of Hong Kong. And it states that Hong Kong has the obligation to locally adopt a legislation to prevent acts of sedition, trying to overthrow the state, which is the Chinese Communist Party government and so on. So right now, the government is proposing for the second time since 2003 to locally adopt a legislation to shoulder those responsibility. And the proposal that they came up with is largely problematic for a few reasons. First of all, it's because it's so fake that it covers almost all aspects of life, from social activities, social affairs, to research, education, to all sorts of levels in your life. Those things can be considered as related to national security. So it leads to a very difficult situation for journalists and even for normal citizens. For example, the proposal that the government put out suggested that any kind of approach to try to change the minds of governments and policymaking would count as an infringement under the Article 23. So normal policy advocacy is no longer possible. 
or they say people have the obligations to report to the police when someone around you is committing a crime. For example, if I am talking about, oh, actually, we are talking about something that would be seen as criminal right now. And basically, Justin, Michael, and Lockman, you all have the responsibility to report me because I'm talking about things that would infringe the Article 23. So, so there have been a lot of these concerns that are being raised from the law, and it has huge implications on the uh, cyberspace as well. That was a great overview of the Article 23, especially history and how uh, toxic it's been for all these years uh, here in, uh, in Hong Kong. But I think it might be helpful for the reader to know that the law has a different sort of meaning in Hong Kong these days than what you would understand in, in Europe or United States and so on, uh, where the law is like an independent sort of institution of society. But what we've seen over the last couple of years in Hong Kong is that the law in Hong Kong used to be independent. You, used, you, you could trust the courts to operate independently of the government. But one big issue during the 2019 protest was exactly, are the courts actually under the government or separate and independent? And the government have been making the case that like, there is no such thing as a separation of powers in Hong Kong. And so moving more and more towards the China model, where the law is an instrument of the government, I think that's important sort of context for when we're talking about all the things that are going to come up in the next couple of minutes or so, that the, the, the powers that are granted to the authorities under the law are not under a system of check and balances, basically. And that these can be used and abused by the authorities however they wish. Vague definitions, for example, which is usually not uncommon in law, right? Because you want some flexibility in law. You cannot completely rattle everything in law. But the sort of like broad definitions in the law, as it is today in Hong Kong, become very easily manipulated and abused by the authorities. And so, for example, like in China, for example, that is basically anything that the authorities have not officially approved as fact, and which is the opposite, right, from what we understand here in other parts of the world, where national secrets are like a blacklist, like here's something that you cannot talk about, right? What I'm afraid is will happen in Hong Kong is that national secrets under the Article 23, we become this sort of whitelist, right? Here are the things you can talk about, and everything else is a national secret, right? And that's a real issue of concern, at least for me. So I suppose what we're talking about here is this sort of sense that the last embers of freedom on the one hand, and of course, internet or digital freedoms are also being stamped out. I just wanted to, to add one element to what Lokman was saying about how both national law or international law has been manipulated and, and twisted to suit Beijing's purposes, using the, the basic law as, as an example. So Ahead of the handover of Hong Kong from the British back to China, within the Sino-British Joint Declaration, which was signed and agreed in the 80s between then Margaret Thatcher and Zhao Ziyang, it was entered into the UN treaty base, into the UN treaty system officially, making it registered by the UN treaty system. It's a form of international law. It is a treaty, a bilateral treaty between the two parties. And yet, in 2017, China just wished it away and said that this is really just an, quote, historical document, and it has no practical significance and no binding force. And so this is an international treaty that China entered into, which is also in part setting up 
the role that the basic law will have, the one country, two systems, the the way in which laws and policies are negotiated and adopted in Hong Kong, all of that nationally, which was also then supposed to be enforced under this treaty. But this is relevant not just at the national level, it's also an indication of how China feels completely unaccountable to the international legal norms and the international human rights system, rather international you know, norms and standards, including internet freedom principles and norms, which are, of course, then soft law. But what's notable here, too, is because one point of analysis for all of the laws we're talking about in Hong Kong is that Hong Kong is, again, under the basic law and other local laws, beholden to accountable under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and other international human rights frameworks that that the PRC actually isn't. And that's a function of history, but it's still binding on Hong Kong. And as a result, a few years ago, the Human Rights Committee, which is responsible for monitoring and, and assessing the implementation of the ICCPR, in its review of Hong Kong, specifically on the national security law, due to a raft of human rights concerns, some that have to do with internet freedom, others obviously on press freedom, other association assembly rights issues. But the Human Rights Committee very clearly in its concluding observations said that Hong Kong should full stop cease to implement the national security law. And Hong Kong just ran roughshod through that recommendation. And this is where we are today. You just painted a bleak picture somewhat of the extent to which the rule of law is being run over roughshod. Are there any points of leverage here? Do you hold hope that anything will go in a different direction than it seems to be going at this point? Is there legal recourse for those who are concerned about rights, rule of law, and certainly free expression in Hong Kong? If I say I am extremely hopeful, then I would be lying because any reasonable person looking at the situation would be like, we're quite toasted in this regard when it comes to, in general, freedom of expression and internet freedoms. But there is always a bit of silver lining uh, to the situation, especially because uh, the proposed legislation is actually local legislation. So technically it's subjected to judicial review in Hong Kong instead of the national security law where no judicial review or any kind of legal challenges against the law is impossible. But the fact that initiating a judicial review against uh, any legislations related to the Article 23 might be an infringement of the national security law, which is not subject to any kind of legal challenges, will be quite interesting in a way and quite sad to see if anyone will attempt to to try to challenge the law and so on. But on the other hand, it's not completely impossible for some space to maneuver when it comes to the proposed legislation. Um, There are a lot of things that different stakeholders can do, especially when it comes to uh, multinational corporates in Hong Kong, like big service providers like Google, like Facebook or Meta or X or, or whatever there is that's out there that do operate in the Hong Kong market. Like they are the one who's going to be really hit by the legislation and they do have some sort of leverage. But I'm not sure if they would be willing to do it. I've seen Google going into court with the Canadian government till the very, very last like hurdle. But I don't see similar approaches being 
used in Hong Kong in terms of these legislations. Perhaps the context is very different, I understand that. But I do think if they are willing to do something, there might be uh, some space for maneuver when it comes to the situation in Hong Kong. So there's the sense that the tech firms still have some leverage, you're saying, essentially? Yeah, I'd say more or less they do have it. Probably Lockman will know better on this subject because Lockman has more experience in, in, in the actual operating environment. But I do think they, they do have some leverage. Lockman. I think uh, the question of hope is always a very tricky one. Because obviously, if you look at the last couple of years, things have gone really bad in Hong Kong in terms of freedoms and digital rights, especially. But the other way to look at it is the internet in Hong Kong used to be very free and open, just like any other like country in the world, not like China at all. And then so the other way to look at this is, but like the reality is also that Hong Kong's internet is not like China's internet right now. There is still a, like the hopeful thing is to say, there's still a lot of bad that could happen that has not happened yet. So there's a lot of uh, work that we can do to make sure that it doesn't slide into that direction. And this is where the tech platforms, but not just the tech platform, obviously, but like all the major institutions have a role to play. It's not like the script has been written out and the outcome is already defined and decided. There's still a lot that can be done and, and, and could be done. So that's how I'm looking at it. Michael, maybe I'll come to you next. You've been essentially organizing calling on tech platforms to resist censorship, in particular around a campaign protest anthem that was restricted on YouTube. Tell us about what you've been doing in terms of trying to engage with tech firms. In terms of the potential leverage that global tech community has in Hong Kong, one, one of them also is to pursue every possible legal challenge. This is the sort of best practice that across a range of issues, right? counteracting internet shutdowns, right? The provider should issue a legal challenge to every order to shut down the internet, other things like this. But unfortunately, what we found is this is one context in which the platforms have been quite shy about expressing any challenge to the frog in a boiling water phenomena of the deteriorating internet freedom in Hong Kong. And this is both through public and private uh, engagement with authorities in Hong Kong. And the reason why platforms are in the best place to enter in as parties in these types of cases, either through the current injunction hearing that's being tossed back and forth between the court in Hong Kong or other similar cases, is again, for the same reasons, that bleakness that we outlined earlier. Individuals in Hong Kong, lawyers in Hong Kong, those that aren't already facing you know, existing spurious arbitrary charges under the national security law are just opening themselves up to persecution if they were to then enter in as parties in these types of disputes. There was one instance where a well-known uh, activist, Chao Hong Tung, tried to enter into this case, but the court refused her effort, saying she wasn't really a party to this. She already is facing a number of and judicial harassments. Uh, but we haven't really seen a lot of other people doing that, again, because of the risk, because of the fear. But platforms could do this. They are actually implicated in the injunction. They stand to lose financially and other means that they could actually even enter this in an apolitical way. All of this is obviously very politicized. But if they wanted to protect themselves a little bit, they could still hide behind that type of argument. 
And unfortunately, we haven't seen any platforms who would be significantly impacted by this injunction trying to enter in as parties to the case. Also, we haven't seen a lot of public outcry, public criticism. Some of the same platforms, either individually or speaking uh, through coalitions, whether it's the Asia Internet Coalition or the Global Network Initiative, have come out quite critical of uh, similarly concerning measures that would restrict internet freedoms in neighboring countries. But we really haven't seen that kind of public registry of, of concern relating to China and Hong Kong. I think perhaps one way that we see that is that it's also an implication that the platforms are also aware of who's calling the shots in Hong Kong, and it's Beijing. And if they enter too much into their criticism or their critique of what's happening in Hong Kong, these are also companies that have significant, some of them have significant business holdings, business operations in China. And so it's not just the potential financial impact to their markets in Hong Kong, but it's also their market access in the mainland China. You've just laid out the connection to uh, Chinese power, and perhaps that's what's changing the way that the platforms are behaving here. You've been covering South Asia generally for Article 19 for some years. Do you have experience of essentially seeing tech platforms intervene in other nations where perhaps there's not the uh, boogeyman of or the specter of Chinese authorities behind the scenes? Yeah, absolutely. I think there is there's a clear double standard in terms of the the way that the international tech community is responding to restrictions on internet freedom in one country to another. For example, when Vietnam last year moved to uh, issue a, a draft decree 72 under the cybersecurity law, which among other things would impose hasty notice and takedown orders up to 24 hours, further real name identity verification measures, things like this, the Global Network Initiative issued a statement, a detailed analysis of Decree 72, Draft Decree 72 in Vietnam, criticizing it for various reasons, failure to adhere to international human rights or internet freedom principles. When the government in India sought to force Twitter to remove content that was dealing with commentary that was critical of the BJP government. Twitter challenged those decisions in court. These are two examples where we've seen in the region individual uh, platforms or platforms operating in coalition standing up to pressure from, uh, let's say, semi-authoritarian or authoritarian states to impose measures that you know amount to censorship and surveillance. Unfortunately, we really don't see that same level of adherence to their own self-proclaimed principles, commitments to human rights, commitment to various internet freedom principles and things like that when it comes to China, when it comes to the greater China area. Just to add a little bit to what Michael earlier was saying about the lack of absence of tech platforms in this debate. And I just wanted to say it's not just the tech platforms also. In 2020, when the national security law was dropping Hong Kong, there was a remarkable upswelling of governments giving uh, critique and criticism. But fast forward to today with the upcoming Article 23 legislation uh, proposal, there's been a deafening silence by not just tech platforms, but also governments 
on this issue. And as if either we're accepting it or it's normal or whatever, but it's not normal, but not acceptable. And it's been frustrating when even the Regina Iblau, who was the minister of security back in 2003, when the original Article 23 was proposed and got massively shelved, at this point now can say, hey, like we don't hear any criticism from anyone right now. You know, so it is okay. No, it's not okay. Adding on what Lockman has just talked about online platforms not being in the debate, it's very weird because I remember when the national security law was being put forward in 2020, they actually at least issued some kind of response, like raising concerns about data requests being made to these platforms and made pledges that they're not going to answer a Hong Kong government's data request after the adoption of the national security law. But right now, the scope of the proposed Article 23 are actually much bigger than the national security law, and it will affect the daily operations of uh, tech companies, platforms, even internet service providers, much more than it did before. So it's actually very weird to see that they're not going to say anything, or it doesn't seem that they have planned to say anything. Because for example, one of the, as I talked about just now, one of the key things is that you have to report someone's attempt to break the, the, the law. And imagine if you're running an email service, which is not encrypted, and you see someone emailing each other about, say, for example, Hong Kong independence, do you, as in online service providers, have the responsibility to report this kind of communication to the police so that the police can take action against these kind of like subversion activities? And what kind of position uh, will these tech companies be put into? For example, if you're running uh, Google and you have Gmail, and in these emails you find these sort of weird or so-called criminal content, or what about like uh, user-generated content platforms like YouTube, you put something on it and what if it's seditious, then is, is there a responsibility of Google to report? And what kind of cost will that be for their own policy team or people who does this kind of like content moderation? And so it has massive implications on the daily operations and it would affect their ad revenue and so on. But they don't seem to want to speak on the issue, which is very weird from my perspective. Michael had shared Lockman's report on some of the doxing that took place in 2019. I guess I could ask a kind of general question about whether we're continuing to see more nefarious, Lockman, you mentioned persecution earlier, uh, whether we're seeing, continuing to see more nefarious persecution of pro-democracy activists or other folks who represent a challenge to Beijing's interests in Hong Kong. Well, what we see is the repression is spreading, right? Like in, in Hong Kong, it's been ongoing and it's still ongoing and, and it's getting worse and worse. But what you also see is there is a trend towards the repression going transnational. And it's not just Hong Kong citizens who have moved abroad. Because that's obviously a primary target. A lot of people have left Hong Kong following the developments of the last couple of years. And, and so the Hong government has been issuing, for example, bounties on, on these people who simply have expressed support for the movement and so on. But also what you see is it's not just the, uh, Hong Kong, but also U.S. citizens uh, have been targeted. And increasingly also, and this is also why I think like more people should know about this, is not just uh, a story of Hong Kong and Hong Kong people or, or even Chinese people. It's everyone who wants to do business in China 
uh, needs to know what's going on here because this is also affecting them. And even the powerful companies right now have are seemingly afraid to stand up to these kind of practices. We, we talked with Lend about Google, but Apple, for example, also is not innocent here. They have this great reputation of pro-privacy everywhere in the world, except in China. And it happens at the entire manufacturing line and, and everything is in China, of course. This, this is a story that's affecting everyone. And Hong Kong is just a canary in a coal mine. And so if you want to know with the influence of China expanding, like you, we would do well to heed the lessons that Hong Kong is teaching us. And also adding on what Lockman just said about like companies that are operating in Hong Kong, the proposed article basically says the government has the power to suspend different kinds of organizations from operating or even order dissolution, not only for like just NGOs or civil society groups, but also companies or other private entities. They have the power to do so. I think that also adds to the the, the risk that they're exposed to. And, and they should be concerned about these things because if you look at what happened in China, a lot of the times foreign companies are some of the targets when it comes to recent a force closure of an entity. And at the same time, and another offense that just came into my mind is the unlawful disclosure of information. So it, it does is not only limited to state secrets, but also covers any information that would looks like that it is national secret, even though if it's not true. So the whole operational environment for these kind of platforms have just drastically changed. Everything that allows this kind of social media company or any kind of platform to operate is just suddenly gone under this proposed Article 23. And still they are not voicing their concerns. Maybe they're do- doing it behind closed doors so that they're not publishing seditious material. I have no idea if it's happening behind closed doors. But not having any kind of public gesture basically goes against all the principle that they say they uphold. For example, like connecting people to information for Google or protecting privacy as Google as Apple always always says. And they're not doing anything publicly. And I wonder what kind of internal policy discussion they're having on these issues. Well, certainly if there are tech executives who are listening to this and they would like to share some insight into their deliberations, uh, we're happy to hear from them. I suppose I'll just ask you this. There, there are probably some listeners out there wondering, why do these American tech firms who say they are pro-democracy, who say they are concerned about things like human rights, why do they continue to operate in China if they're being put in this situation in Hong Kong, why do they continue to operate there? I realize that's a tricky question because we're talking about also channels that are, of course, still very important for free expression. But is there anybody that sort of has a view on that? Whether at some point the tech firms should take a stand perhaps by saying this is no longer an environment in which we can do business and stay in accordance with our stated principles. Not to pick on Apple alone, because there's other problematic companies, but I think Apple provides a really good sort of case study in in addressing some of this question. Apple is a trillion dollar company, and they make about 20% of their profit in China. That's from production and sales. Um, And that's a pretty significant 
financial incentive for Apple to comply with requests from China for things that Apple claims uh, vehemently to be against in, in virtually every other market. There's been a lot of reporting on this over the years. The New York Times has done some really great uh, reports. There's uh, an organization under a great fire called Apple Censorship, which does really terrific work of tracking a lot of the ways in which Apple as a company has been complicit in, again, a lot of the censorship and surveillance demands from China. And what's interesting, too, is there's starting to be a conversation around decoupling or sort of other terms that have been bandied about for how some of these companies that are integrated into the supply chain or Chinese market, whether they're hardware or software, internet companies, so forth, might start to try and move out of China a little bit because of certain risks. Some of that might be because of increasing risks by, by new legislation, such as in Hong Kong, creating certain challenges for them. But in the mainland, where a lot of these laws have been in place for a long time, the cybersecurity law, uh, China's cybersecurity law has been enforced since 2017, for example. So it's not anything new, but it's becoming a, an increasingly difficult operational environment. But another big question is whether or not they have conducted human rights impact assessments in the first place for all of these markets. And the big question is, clearly, they, I think we can see from how they have been operating over the last five to 10 years that a lot of those HRIAs were probably not conducted very well. Uh, but certainly one question is whether they took into consideration or have reevaluated within their human rights impact assessments what market exit will look like, what responsible market exit will look like. And there's a lot of conversation right now about these tech companies potentially leaving or becoming less integrated with China. But if they haven't really taken into consideration what responsible market exit looks like, we're then looking at parallels to, for example, what happened with Telenor in Myanmar and its exit from Myanmar following the coup there. So there's a lot of questions, again, around the sort of lack of transparency and how these companies see themselves, again, upholding or not their own stated corporate responsibility to human rights. Lachman. I think it might be helpful to put in context what it means to leave a market. And oftentimes we think of like a grandiose exit Google did like in 2008, when they made this grand announcement on, oh, now we're going to leave China. What we've seen in the last couple of years in Hong Kong after uh, the national security law was announced in 2020 is that companies haven't made these grand announcements, but there have been changes. They have moved things away from Hong Kong. Data centers are no longer, if they already were in Hong Kong, were moved out of Hong Kong to other places, Singapore, whatever, right? Or they plan to not come at all. Personnel, key strategic personnel is also being moved uh, out of uh, Hong Kong, have been moved out of Hong Kong. So I don't think any tech company at this point who is still operating in Hong Kong will have policy lawyers like that are responsible for these kind of decisions in Hong Kong uh, because they could be arrested. So they, they keep those in uh, California, wherever. And so mostly salespeople and so on are left uh, and, and maybe engineers. Uh, and so there's like a strategic retreat already going on without sort of a grandiose rub it in the nose kind of announcement of like we're leaving Hong Kong now. 
But what you also see is that governments are pushing back on that. If, for example, China's security law is now saying if you're operating some kind of service that is relying on critical infrastructure, then it has to be in China. India, for example, uh, has said if you have if you're operating here, we need some kind of privacy person here that basically is responsible for these policies, right? And and so basically a hostage, right? Like uh, companies can re can respond by retreating strategically, but you also see government now introducing kind of legislations to say, well, if you're moving data centers away, and we're going to mandate them that you uh, have them here if, uh, if you want to keep doing business here or keep personal and so on. And so that's the ongoing uh, battle right now that we see uh, going on. I think one thing I'd like to ask is what you were each watching for over the next few days and weeks as this situation plays out and what the process is from here, what the timeline looks like, but also any kind of final uh, thoughts you have on what should happen or what you would like to see happen, either from other governments, from the tech firms themselves, or even perhaps from the authorities in Hong Kong who are still in a position perhaps to make change? One thing that's on the sort of radar is the legislative calendar has also stated an intention for tabling a cybersecurity critical infrastructure bill. And this hasn't been put forward yet, so there's no real draft to to point to in terms of what is going to be in new cybersecurity or, or critical infrastructure legislation. But I, I think that in that we know where a lot of the direct or, or implied influence in the legislative process in Hong Kong comes from. And so we can also pretty clearly look at what China's cybersecurity law says and what it's a sort of the Chinese cybersecurity law came out in 2017. And there's been some follow-up legislation, the Critical Information Infrastructure Security Protection Regulations in 2021, uh, cybersecurity review measures a year later, and so forth. And I think looking at a lot of those, we can start to speculate what might be in Hong Kong's cybersecurity critical information bill. And that'll be you know, concerning for the same types of censorship and surveillance concerns that we've been discussing throughout supercharging some of the things that are already there, so to speak. And a lot of that would probably relate to things around data localization, real name identity verification, things like that. But another place that this also points to concerns for the future is, again, how China perceives its sort of controlling role over critical infrastructure and its emphasis on uh, being the world leader in undersea fiber optic cables, and that Hong Kong is a place where a number of landing stations currently exist and new projects are underway. For example, next year, Cambodia and Hong Kong are slotted to open a new fiber optic cable running broadband to Cambodia. And in the fact that a lot of countries around the world have certainly started to wake up more to the threats that a Chinese company or a state-owned enterprise's involvement in this type of infrastructure, whether it's Huawei Marine changing its name to HMN Technologies to evade some of that scrutiny and so forth, 
But then I think because of some of the challenges we've mentioned that still certain actors believe it's business or it can be business as usual with Hong Kong, then failing to acknowledge the risks inherent in Hong Kong being so plugged into global internet infrastructure that certain laws like this potential cybersecurity critical infrastructure bill could then raise some real risks to the you know, information integrity, information security, global internet infrastructure. It's very important to think about if there is like significant difference or substantial difference if there's no Western tech, just to overgeneralize it, being in Hong Kong. Is there any difference if we have no Western tech and just being left with like Chinese alternatives? I think there is still difference right now. At least we are still accessing, for example, foreign media in Hong Kong right now. So those things do make a slight difference. Maybe it doesn't change the, the bigger context in general. But I think right now at this point, I'd prefer to have these big tech still in Hong Kong instead of saying completely leaving the market. And as Michael said, what is responsible exit? If at some point these companies' platforms are leaving Hong Kong, what kind of situation are Hong Kongers being left in? And in terms of what next, I think the law will be passed in Hong Kong, given that the legislative council in Hong Kong are filled by patriots that are widely in support of the Hong Kong's government and the Chinese government. So I think the law would definitely be passed. But there are things that governments and uh, tech companies can do. Governments should at least revise business risk advice for the operational environment in Hong Kong. Like right now, the UK, for example, only have a line or two about the national security law and its possible implications, which is insane if you think about what kind of risk these UK companies are exposed to if they're operating in Hong Kong. And there haven't been enough like investigations and what are the implications? Like how much money are these companies losing? Or what is the economic like impact on these companies if they are operating in an environment without Article 23 and national security law? None of these things have actually been thoroughly assessed. And for tech companies, I think they they will have to think about what they're doing and if they're still if they can still call themselves like upholding human rights to the, the freedom of expression. It's a very difficult situation to operate in and uh, there are ways to circumvent. As Lockman said, there's strategic retreat, like not having data being stored in Hong Kong right now, not having policy people in Hong Kong and so on. But these are the short-term circumvention they can do. But long-term, to be honest, I don't have any answers right now. I wish I have some more insightful answers and say, hey, let's do this and this will solve the problem. But I think at least be active and try to maneuver in the space that we have because being inactive is exactly what authoritarian regimes want so that they can easily just change the status quo into something that is desirable for them. I think hope is in believing in change, that it's possible, not that it will for sure happen. So the legislation will be passed for sure, as uh, Chung Ching said, because the legislative council is completely rigged in favor of, the, of Beijing at this point. But the world changes if we change too. And so one thing 
I would advise anyone who who is, and at this point, it's very hard to avoid doing business with China, right? Dealing with not dealing with China, and so anyone, if a tech company, or governments, or even us, it would be good for us to think about what is our bottom line. What are we not willing to compromise on? Related, obviously, think about what we are willing to compromise on, and that seemingly that seems like a lot. If you if it comes to China these days, I think. But what are we not willing to compromise on? And then make those clear, and then be ready to step out if those are being attacked. And then I think that is something that we all can do a lot more, and especially expect the companies and governments to speak out on that and be clear on that too, because that's not happening. And because if we let the other side decide, they're going to keep pushing our boundaries as far as they can. And it's up to us to say here and no longer. I thank you all for uh, sharing this information with us. It painted a dire picture, but also left us with a way to think about hope in these situations. So I'm grateful to you for taking the time to speak to me and to my listeners. Uh, Lachman Michael Chungqing, thank you so much. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.